the first chapter of Colossians. And as I said earlier, this first chapter is really all about the Christian and his Christ. We've noted what Paul had to say here, both about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. We considered the subject, who Christ is. And then last time, what Christ has done. There are some things that are on the surface of verses 12 through 14 that are really interesting. The topic discussed here is the deliverance by Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. There's also the deity of Jesus Christ from verse 15 through to verse 19. talks about who he is. This is no ordinary man, but this is the image of the invisible God. This is the one by whom all things were created, verse 16 tells us. One who is before all things, verse 17, there's his pre-existence. And by him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church. These are all indicators that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And then from verse 20 to verse 22, the topic is the death of Jesus Christ. He speaks about the blood of his cross, verse 20. And how that through the shedding of that blood, he has brought about reconciliation. We know what a reconciliation is when two people are at loggerheads, they're at war, they're at enmity, and they're brought together and made to be at peace. That's what God has done through Christ in the gospel. We are at war with God. In a sense, God is at war with us. And Jesus, by his blood, has turned away God's wrath from us. And so we can draw near with our sins taken care of. We are reconciled, verse 22 says, in the body of his flesh through death. So that we're presented to God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So there's the deliverance by Jesus, there's the deity of Jesus, there's the death of Jesus. But in verse 23, I want to go on from there to note this great truth. And that is the demand of Jesus Christ. You'll notice the way this is phrased. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and so on. That little word in the English, if, is also repeated in chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. And it is a word that might indicate to you uncertainty. You know, if this and if that happens and if the other thing happens, there's uncertainty there. But that's not the sense in which this word is used. I would contend that the idea here is since. It's not if, it's since this is true. For example, in chapter 3, verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, he's not casting doubt upon that fact with the Colossian Christians. He's saying, since it's true that you're risen with Christ, therefore you should live in this way. You should seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God, and so on. But at the heart of this text, there is the greatness of the gospel. The gospel is mentioned here as the hope of the gospel. And once again, we'll return to that, but the idea is not, as we often think of it, 
when we have a hope for something, it's the little kid coming up to Christmas time thinking, I hope I get this for Christmas. But I'm not quite sure if I will. In fact, I'm kind of doubtful if I will, but I hope so. There's uncertainty there. It's not really a matter that you can place your trust in. You're just hoping for the best. But that's not what it means when it talks about the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is used in a totally different way. It's something that's solid. It's something that's sound. something that's absolutely sure. And as we look at this text of Scripture, as I say, the subject really at the heart of it is the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we do something that we're supposed to not do, and that is to start at the end of the verse and work back, I want to show you some things about the gospel in this text. Notice here, at the end of the verse, it says, Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. I am, Paul says, a gospel preacher. I'm a gospel minister. That's what God has called me to do. And here we have what I would call the great heralding of the gospel. The great heralding of the gospel. The telling forth of the gospel. Paul here is really linking his ministry to the Colossian Christians. He is a preacher. He is a minister of the very same gospel as was preached by this man that he's mentioned already, Epaphras. We talked about him back there at verse 7 of chapter 1. He talks about knowing the grace of God and truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, note, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Epaphras was a gospel preacher. And Paul said to the people, you heard the gospel from him. And Paul is telling them here in this text, verse 23, that he is a preacher, he is a minister of the very same gospel as Epaphras. But furthermore, unlike the false teachers who were present at Colossae, who were seeking to subvert the people of that church, he was a herald of that gospel which is universal in its proclamation. See how he mentions the hope of the gospel, verse 23, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. The idea really is that it is a gospel that was preached throughout the creation. All over the world, all over the known world at the time, that gospel had been and was being preached. The gospel, you see, had invaded every large center of population in the known world at that time. It wasn't just sent to a select few. It wasn't just located in a small region of the Roman world, but it was a message that knew no boundaries. It was preached in all the creation. And isn't that the will of Christ? You know the last thing Jesus talked about before he went to heaven was Christian missions, spreading the gospel. Matthew 28, the last chapter of that great gospel, gives us what we often refer to as the Great Commission. From verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, it means all authority, is given unto me in heaven and on earth. 
Then he said this, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, people everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the end of the age. Amen. The gospel was to be preached everywhere. Mark's rendering of this is a little bit simpler. Mark 16 verse 15 where he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Again, there is a version of the Great Commission found in Acts chapter 1. The same incident. The disciples are with him on the mountain. The eleven of them, not twelve anymore. Judas has already gone out and committed suicide. He was a traitor. He was a betrayer of Christ. There are eleven men. They're meeting the Lord on Mount Olivet. And when they're there, he speaks to them. And he said this. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Where? Both in Jerusalem. That's the home place. That's where they were. Jerusalem. And in all Judea. That's adjacent to Jerusalem. And in Samaria. That's further out again. And unto the uttermost part of the earth. Notice the spread of the gospel. It's going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And on out into the uttermost part of the earth eventually including continents of the world like America, Australasia, Asia, various places, Europe. This is a great gospel, Paul says. It's already been planted far and wide in the world for the benefit of souls everywhere. And basically we're not going to allow a few local heretics to allow people to be drawn away from this great message. It is the worldwide gospel. The gospel of the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15. This is the message that the Lord Jesus said was to be heralded to all men everywhere. And folks, this is spoken over 2,000 years ago, but it still applies. This is still God's commission to his church. The Lord still says to us, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's why men and women leave their homes and go to other countries and preach the gospel. That's why Christians witness for the Lord. They are to be heralds of this gospel. Are you a herald of the gospel like Paul was? A witness of the gospel? Can you tell others if they ask you about the hope that lies in your own heart? What is the basis of that? The great heralding of the gospel is here. But without saying any more about that, I want us to consider the great hearing of the gospel. The gospel is preached. And the gospel must be heard. Look again back at verse 5 through to verse 7 of chapter 1. He says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard, notice that, ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. 
they heard it in their ears, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and know the grace of God and truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. They heard the gospel. Epaphras is the one who God used to faithfully preach the message to them at Colossae. He was the instrument. And what a great privilege it was for them to hear the gospel of Christ. There were many in the world, even at that time, who had not heard the gospel. They had not been under the hearing of the sound of that message. It is a privilege to hear the gospel. Men and women need to hear the gospel. If they don't hear the gospel, how are they going to be saved? What is the method that is going to be used to bring them to eternal life if they don't hear the gospel? Go back to what Paul said about that in Romans. The book of Romans chapter 10, if you can find verse 14. Well, we'll, we'll read verse 13 first of all for the context here. <clears throat> Romans 10 Verse 13, for whosoever, that means anyone at all, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a wonderful promise, is it not? Whosoever shall hear, whosoever shall call, rather, upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know that word whosoever, it's found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. There used to be a preacher in a town called Kidderminster in England. His name was Richard Baxter, great Puritan. And Richard Baxter used to say, he thought it would have been a great thing if God put into the Bible, for God so loved Richard Baxter, that if Richard Baxter believes in him, that Richard Baxter would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he got to thinking, well, there's a lot of Richard Baxters. And if I read that the gospel was for Richard Baxter, I might think it was some other Richard Baxter. But he said, whosoever is a word that takes in all the Richard Baxters who ever did live or whoever will live. This is a word for me. Whosoever doesn't matter who you are, shall call upon the name of the Lord, that is in repentance and faith, shall be saved. But then it says, Romans 10, 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then it says, And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And then it says, And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And it was that kind of message that challenged the heart of a cobbler, a shoemaker in England called William Carey. William Carey saw that the British East India Company were doing a lot of trade with the continent and the, the land of India. And he thought, well, what about all those people that are there that have never heard the gospel? How are they going to hear without a preacher? And he stood up in the Northampton Baptist Ministers Fraternal 
and, and he made a statement and, and he talked about the need for us to evangelize the heathen. And there was an old crusty hyper-Calvinistic minister there who stood up and said, Young man, sit down and be quiet. Because when God gets ready to convert the heathen, he will do so without consulting you or me. And William Carey thought, that's nonsense. Because the Bible teaches me that God uses men. That God sends men. That Jesus commissioned men. That they must hear. And they're not going to hear without a preacher. So William Carey left his shoemaking company. And he went with Marshman and Ward, two other missionaries, to India. Didn't have a single convert for eight years. But he stuck at it. And before he ever left India in death, there were not 25 churches, there were 25 seminaries that were teaching men to preach in that land. How shall they hear without a preacher? Men need to hear the gospel. But here's the point. You could hear the gospel and not heed its great message. See, there are many who hear, but they don't heed. Look at this verse that talks to this in, in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4. This is a fearful text, really. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. That means it didn't do them any good. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The Greek rendering here is really interesting. It is because they were not united by faith to it. They heard it. But it was like water off a duck's back. It didn't do them any good. And Paul was really concerned about the Colossians, lest some might hear the great message, but let teachers of error, the Gnostics and others with foolish notions, lead them and move them away from it all. And this is what happens in the world, this is what happens sometimes in churches, where people are carried away with false doctrine. Galatians chapter 1 records the words of the Apostle Paul to that particular group of churches, the churches of Galatia. And here's what he said, Galatians 1.6, I marvel, I'm really surprised, he says, that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And the word there means another of a different kind. Completely different message. What happened to them? They heard the truth. They heard that true gospel that Paul was preaching. But they were removed away from that unto another gospel. They forsook the gospel. They heard, but they did not heed. Oh, the heralding of the gospel is really important. The hearing of the gospel is important. And then the hope of the gospel is great. And this is the, te- the actual phrase used in the text in verse 23 of Colossians 1 if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from what? the hope of the gospel the hope of the gospel 
we just confer again here with verse 5. And we made these comments at the time when we studied that. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. It's a gospel of hope. And it's not a hope so. Well, if I believe this, I might be saved. If I accept this, I might go to heaven. No, that's not what it means, the hope of the gospel. This is something that is objective. This is not talking about your subjective belief in it. This is objective. This is a hope outside of yourself that you lay hold upon. Something that's firm. Something that's sure. Something that's set before you as an absolute promise. The hope of the gospel. You might say it's the hope that belongs to or with the gospel. Or the hope that is revealed by the true gospel. That's what Paul means here. That word hope that's translated in your English Bible, it it has the thought behind it of expectation. Or complete confidence. Or watchful waiting. I could give you the Greek word, but that's what it means. That's the literal translation of it. Expectation. Complete confidence. Watchful waiting. In other words, this hope is not something that we're thinking about, well, it may happen, it may not happen. No, this is absolutely certain. You believe this truth, you stand on this truth, you rest on this truth, you can take that to the bank, so to speak. You come to Christ on the basis of His Word, He will save you. There's no doubt about it. There's no ifs, buts, ands, or maybes. There's no ambiguity. This is absolutely certain. The hope of the gospel. Expectation. Sometimes we wish for certain things, don't we? We, we desire certain things to happen, but we kind of know within ourselves it's never going to happen. That's ah, a hope, but it's not really a sure hope. It's kind of wishful thinking. That's not what's here. The hope of the gospel that's described in this verse 23 is a confident expectation. If I could put it this way, it is a Christ-centered assurance that the promises of the gospel will be realized. Think of it this way. You read in the Bible the words of Jesus, right? When he says, just for example, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. Or, he that heareth my word, John 5, 24, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. All these promises that Jesus has given, they're written in the word. Now, would you believe those words even more if the Lord were actually to physically appear here before you and stand in front of you and me and state those same words. You'll say, well, of course, of course, I would probably believe that more because I'm hearing it from his lips. But that's what this word is. This is what, this is what the Bible is. This is the word of Christ. We walk by faith, not by sight. Think of it this way. If I'm a blind person and I can't see the person, but I can hear his words, isn't it just the same? It's his word. An old skeptic came to a minister once and he said, you know, all you've got for your salvation is some writing on a bit of paper. And the preacher said, you're absolutely right. 
All I have as a basis for my salvation is some writing on a paper. But here's the thing, it's God's writing. It's God's writing. That's what makes the difference. Oh, the hope of heaven. The hope of glory, as it is further described in verse 27 of Colossians 1. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of heaven and all that is included in salvation is here. And so what Paul is saying to these Colossians is surely the hope, the sure expectation that's held out by the gospel to you, you're not going to forsake or abandon that for another message, are you? You're not going to leave that for some other falsehood. And that brings us to the thrust of Paul's entire statement here. As I said, we're working from the end of the text backwards. I, Paul, am made a minister. The gospel is preached to every creature under heaven. You've heard that gospel, the hope of the gospel. But he said, I don't want you to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from this sure expectation. What is that? Well, the subject here is the great holding to the gospel. Holding to the gospel. Holding it fast. Again, read from verse 21 just to get the connection here. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's the way you were. You were enemies of God. You were estranged from him. You were not in communion with him. But now hath he reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death. He's taken away the enmity. He's taken away the separation between you and him. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What's he talking about here? This is the, the doctrine being stated here of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. As I indicated earlier, some people have found difficulty with this text, verse 23, because of the uncertainty that they have in their minds about the first word. What is that word? If. If you continue in the faith. And by reading that, some have wrongly taught that true Christians, redeemed people, could lose their salvation by falling away into apostasy. In other words, that they could be truly born again, they could pass from death unto life, but then that all could be reversed. And they could lose their salvation. Before I deal further with that, let's look at a couple of texts that are kind of similar to this one. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have to go back in our Bibles a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15... The first two verses there read like this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Then we've got that horrible little word again. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. You go a little bit further in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. 
By the way, it's only a horrible little word if you take it that way. It's not a horrible little word because it's God's word. But you look at Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And further in chapter 10 of Hebrews. In verse 38 and verse 39. The Bible says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What these and other verses are stating is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. What is that? Well, basically it is this. Believing Christians, believing saints who are preserved by God will persevere in the life of faith as the evidence and as the proof that their faith is indeed genuine. Let me repeat that. Believing saints who are preserved by God will persevere in the life of faith as the proof, as the evidence that their faith is indeed genuine. Really what is being said here is that perseverance in godliness is the proof of the genuine character of faith. And this is something that James referred to, the Apostle James. In James chapter 2, let me read these two verses. The one is verse 14 and the other is verse 17. James 2:14. What did the prophet, my brethren, in other words, what good is it? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? And then verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. What some will tell you is that it's not enough to be saved to have faith in Jesus Christ. You also need works to save you. That is not true. The truth is, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone saves you. But the evidence that you've got a true faith in Jesus Christ is that there will be the works in the life. As the evidence of that. Now, how do you know if someone is alive and not dead? Well, there's a pulse. There's breath coming out of their nose or their mouth. I've heard of people who have not been very well. They've been so sick that they were looked like they were at the point of death. You could hardly get a pulse. You could hardly discover whether they were breathing or not. And there are those who have taken a little vanity mirror out of their purse and put it under their nose or their mouth to see if it clouds over at all. There will be evidence of life if life is present. Though it might be faint evidence, it's still evidence. Perseverance in the things of God is proof of the genuine character of faith. Now how does that work out in the Christian life? Does that mean that somebody gets away from the Lord they're not living for the Lord, that means they're not saved. No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. I could show you plenty of places in the Scripture where people did things that were absolutely wrong, terrible. And of course, they, they suffered in their lives as a result. 
But the proof that they were genuinely saved was in their repentance. The psalmist David. The psalmist David committed adultery with another woman and because he did that and the results of that, there was a baby on the way. He had her husband killed in battle. He said, put him to the forefront of the battle. Make sure he'll get wiped out that way and I'll be free to have her as my wife. And God dealt with David as a result of that and his whole family suffered as a result. He had a family of adulterers as a result of that. But did God forgive him? God did forgive him. That event in David's life was an aberration. That was not his normal behavior. That was not his everyday behavior. That was an aberration. Doesn't make it right. He suffered for it. But he wrote Psalm 51 in the aftermath of his repentance. And with bitter tears he wrote, Have mercy upon me, O God. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Teach me truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Oh, David repented. Look at, da- look at Peter. Great servant of the Lord. and In a time that cannot be explained by us. He starts to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. People come to him and say, oh, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not one of his disciples. You've got the wrong person. It's not me. Denied the Lord three times. Was afraid of a young girl who said, you're one of them. I I know by your speech. You're a Galilean. I know you were with him. No, no, that wasn't me. Did I not see you in the garden with him? No, you didn't see me there. And he, he started denying the Lord with oaths and curses. So, well, Peter, Peter wasn't saved then, was Well, wait a minute. Peter repented. All it took from the Lord was a look. All it took was the Lord to look at him. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And then the Lord recommissioned Peter there at the lake by the fire. He said, Peter, follow me. And it's after that that you find Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching and about 3,000 people are converted. Peter eventually, because of his love for Christ, was crucified. But because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his master, he asked that they crucify him upside down. One of the old Puritans said, there's all the difference in the world between a sheep that falls off the path into the mire and immediately wants to get out again and a hog that deliberately gets down into the mire and wants to stay there because it's his natural element that's the difference between one who's truly saved and one who's not a person who tells me their sin doesn't bother them they can just go on and live with impunity in a wrong fashion I'll tell you that's a person who doesn't know the Lord But what Paul is emphasizing here is the holding to the gospel. The need for perseverance. It is a necessity in believers that we go on with the Lord. That we continue in the faith, grounded and settled, which is the term that's used here in verse 23. But you can't do that and I can't do that in our own strength. As soon as you start thinking you're strong enough, you'll immediately find out that you're not. 
And you might have to learn a hard lesson to teach you that you're not strong enough in yourself. In John 15 verse 5, the Lord Jesus was talking about the fact that he was the vine and his people were the branches. And he said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing or severed from me. You get a a branch that's cut off from the vine. The sap from that vine is not going through that branch. It has no life of itself. We need the Lord. God's enabling grace is required from start to finish. Paul said in one place, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. God's enabling grace is needed to keep us going on with him. But of course that does not negate human responsibility and activity. My Bible is not going to pick itself up and read itself. I'm going to have to work at my Christian life with the Lord's help. That's why Paul said to the Philippians in those great verses, Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will, that means to desire, and to do of his good pleasure. That's not a contradiction. That's complementary truth. You see, there's two things there. You are to work out your own salvation. It doesn't mean you sit down with a pen and pencil and you work out how to be saved. That's not what that means. It means you work out that which God has worked in. You work it out in your life. You live the Christian life. But in doing so, you understand that it is God that worketh in you to will, to desire, and to do of His good pleasure. God puts that in you to desire godliness and to be able to practice godliness. My sin is all my own. The godliness is all from Him. That's it. Now you and I must strive to go on with God. We are to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. When I was a teenager I remember reading that in a book that was based on some of those words and it scared the living daylights out of me. Without holiness no man shall see the Lord. I thought I'm I'm never going to see the Lord. I'm never going to see the Lord. Because I don't see that in myself. And yet there's a desire in my heart to be holy and to go on with the Lord and to do the right thing. And for this we must strive. And it's the Lord who provides that holiness. Now the Lord Jesus referred to what Paul referred to here, that perseverance is the proof of the reality of our discipleship. You know when he said that? In John 8.31, I know I'm throwing a lot of references at you, you can pen them down and look them up later. But John chapter 8 verse 31 is really important. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's it. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not just 
the emotion of a moment. This is a lifetime. And so it is this testing of our profession that is in view here in these words. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled. It really means if you abide by or adhere to this. And remember this. This continuing, this perseverance in the things of God doesn't in itself bring salvation. That's not what saves us. But rather it is a proof that salvation already exists. Did you get that? It's not this going on with the Lord that saves you. It's this going on with the Lord that proves that the Lord has already saved you. Because you have a desire to serve Him. We, we, we continue because we are saved. Not in order to be saved. Because the root of the matter is already within us. And I say again, without a change in the life, it's really doubtful whether a professor of Christ is genuinely saved. See, we're just fruit inspectors. We can't see into people's hearts. I can't tell who's really saved and who isn't. The Lord knoweth them that are His. But I can use what we might call a judgment of charity. I see how someone acts, how they live, how they speak, how they do that over a period of time. They're tested and tried, and I can say, knowing all that I know, I believe that person's really saved. That person's a real genuine Christian. Even then, I know we can maybe have the wool pulled over our eyes, and that person is not really genuine. But generally speaking, you will know if someone is a true brother in Christ, and there will be a witness in your heart with their spirit that they're a child of God. But without that sort of change in the life, it's doubtful whether a professor of Christ is genuinely saved. See Colossians 2 verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. It's possible for some to profess to believe the gospel and then later to forget that message and turn away from the truth. And what can we say about such people? Well, they're just proving that they were never really saved in the first place. They never received the truth into their heart. Oh, but I remember that night when they prayed the prayer. I remember when they walked the aisle. I remember when they raised their hand. I remember when they, when they got saved and, and for a little while they went on with the Lord. You may remember all those things. The Lord Jesus said, there are those who are in four types of ground. There's those that are seed that falls by the wayside. And the birds come and take that seed and pluck it away. That's satanic activity. Those are people, the word never really penetrated their hearts. It just lies on the surface. And then there's those on stony ground or rock. There's a sheer layer of rock with a little layer of soil on the top. And when the seed goes in, it doesn't go down very far. There's no root. And where there's no root, there's no fruit. And those are people that Jesus said they continue for a while, but then when tribulation arises because of the word, by and by they are offended. It's too hard. It's too difficult. People don't like it when you're a Christian. People laugh at you for being a Christian. So they just fade away. And then you have the thorny ground. That's the seed that goes in and there's thorns that grow up with the seed and choke it out. Things of the world. The cares of the world. The pleasures of this life. They choke out the, the fruit. It becomes unfruitful. They were never saved. 
and then there's the good ground and the evidence that it's good ground is that the seed there brings forth fruit some 30 fold, some 60 fold, some 100 fold that's the evidence see in the first three cases the evidence is that they were never truly saved those that fall into good ground they're the true believers we must prove the reality of our profession by perseverance our time's pretty much gone but as well as the need for perseverance in the holding to the gospel there's the nature of perseverance what is that? if you continue in the faith grounded and settled etc the Colossians were being urged to carefully examine their foundations literally this could be read this way if you remain on the faith built on that the faith being the objective truth that he had just been outlining the revelation of God regarding the person and work of Christ that's what they place their trust in that's the faith they were to be seated solidly on this ground and not be moved away from it on this great bedrock they professed they were founded just like a foundation is laid on solid rock there was a great skyscraper that was going to be built in some part of this country the ground that they chose was kind of soft and they had to just keep digging and digging and digging and digging you know how far they went down? 160 feet till they hit solid rock and then they realized we can build a skyscraper on that there's a foundation there what Paul is saying here is they must remain solidly seated and not moved away not leaving the faith you see one who leaves the faith was never really saved in the first instance true Christians are those that remain solidly on the foundation they hold fast by the gospel because Christ is the bedrock of our salvation we're built upon him he's the foundation and we're not going to shift if we're truly built on him it is not a mark of grace when you find professors constantly shifting about and we could go into a lot of scriptures that talk about this but suffice to say that perseverance is an activity of faith it's a faith in God himself we must continue to stand firm on the rock of our salvation Paul wrote in another place other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ if you continue in the faith or since you continue in the faith grounded and settled you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel Paul had great confidence in them as a result may the Lord help us to be well grounded to be firmly rooted in the things of Christ